Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Morning. So uh, every Monday, uh, our staff gets together in this room. And so uh, we start at 9 o'clock, and uh, we're kind of spread out all over the room. There's about 20 of us that that gather in here, and uh, we've got, uh, we have YouTube worship, right? And so we've got a, we got a DJ in the back that, that cranks the tunes. We turn it up to about 110 dB, and we go to town, okay? So for those of you who don't know, 110 is loud. And, uh, and so, man, we get in here, and we worship and, and, and sing and sit and soak, and it's just a powerful time. And then at some point, we all gather together on these front couple of rows. So these, if you're here this morning, the front couple of rows, these are anointed rows. And so God's got something special for you this morning, okay? Um, but, but we gather here and um, our staff rotates through uh, a staff devotional and prayer time. And so uh, someone uh, will bring a, a topic, an idea, and we'll either break into uh, uh, groups and pray, or sometimes we break into uh, our own solitude and uh, a quiet place to, to really think about what we're praying through. So this last week, Chris Stone, our Mix 56 pastor, um, he was bringing our devotional. And so he took us into Leviticus, which, uh, as I've said, that's where all Bible reading goes to die. And, uh, and, and uh, we talked a little bit about festivals. And the whole idea of the festivals were uh, God loves to celebrate. And so he instituted celebration in the early people of Israel. And so we were talking about celebrating. And so here's the question that he posed. The question was, what should you be celebrating? And so I wrote that down at the top of my journal. What should I be celebrating? And he said, hey, just take this, get alone for a little bit, and, and maybe God will have you list all the things that you're grateful for, things you need to be celebrating. So I sat down, and I just was staring at that question, and all of a sudden I just underlined the word should. What should I be celebrating? And so I started listing things, and um, the, the longer my list got, the more convicted I was, because God was taking me to a place, and, and here's what ultimately he revealed to me as I was writing. He said, the reason you underline should is because you don't celebrate. And I'm like, huh, talk to me a little more about that. And what I realized was, man, I am so preoccupied. Just in life in general, I'm preoccupied. No matter what I'm currently doing, I'm always looking about you know, what comes next, right? What are we doing next? Uh, um, that's partly impatience, partly I find my worth 
in, hey, let's get this done because we got to move to the next thing. And, and I fancy myself as a leader that's a pace-setting leader. I'm always pushing us toward the next thing. But here's what I found. I don't live in the moment. Incredible things will happen in a moment. And I find myself thinking about what's coming next or what's going wrong. Is, is, is it loud enough, soft enough, or the lights just right? Or, man, keep up with the lyrics. What are we doing here, right? And, and I am preoccupied with, with the inner workings, and I'm missing the moment. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but do you find yourself doing and doing and doing and doing? Here's the problem with that. When we are doing to define our being, that's really being driven by a sense of self-worth. That I'm taking my identity sometimes to people and saying, hey, I need you to validate me. I I, I need you to think I'm doing a good job. And so uh, my worth is tied to what comes next. So whatever I do now, I've got to do something more to please you so that you remain happy. And so I just don't celebrate. You find yourself that way? So the Grand Canyon is one of the seven wonders of the world. It was formed due to erosion by the Colorado River. It's massive. It's 1,904 square miles, a mile deep, 18 miles wide, and 277 miles long. It's massive. It's massive. And uh, I had the opportunity to hike it in October 2020. I may have mentioned it before, but um, I uh, (laughs) was 17 guys and um, we hiked the Grand Canyon. But but here's what I want to hone in on, just this part of the story this morning. I showed up untrained and out of shape, okay? And spent 15 grueling hours staring at my feet. One foot in front of the other. And it became a mental grind and it became all about survival. I mean, seriously, I was just trying to survive. My wife kept saying, hey, you should probably train. I'm like, babe, it's just taking a long walk. (laughs) It was not just taking a long walk. 27 miles, 15 hours. It was grueling. And so after the fact, we've got this shared drive where we're all sharing pictures. And I had, I think, two pictures. And both of them were me going. (sighs) (laughs) And so I get home and I pulled up the shared drive and and, uh, mirrored it up on the TV. And I'm showing Yvonne and uh, I think Abby all of the beautiful scenery. And here's all I could do as I was flipping through the pictures. All I could do is lament the fact that I saw none of that. None of it. Like I remember nothing about the Grand Canyon except for what I saw in those pictures. Why? Because I was staring at my feet. I was looking down. It was one foot in front of the other. And here's the deal. I missed what was beautiful and breathtaking because I showed up unprepared and I settled for the accomplishment over enjoying the experience. So guess what? I'm part of an elite few that can say I hiked the Grand Canyon in a day. And guess what? I enjoyed none of it. What a waste. What a waste of 15 hours. 
to be able to say I accomplished something that I had no joy accomplishing. And, and my celebration came in the form of collapsing into a stranger's arms when I got to the top and immediately throwing up five times. <laughs> my offering at the moment was definitely not my best, and I missed the beauty of a shared experience because I was merely living to fight another day. Do you feel that way? Have you ever found yourself as such a slave to accomplishment that you are just, man, I got my head down. I'm just going, I mean, it's the American way, right? Just put your head down, grind it out in the name of accomplishment. And I believe that God wants to say to some of you this morning, look up. Because when we think about the Grand Canyon, it is a place of awe and wonder and beauty. That's your life right there. And we get stuck down in the canyon, it can be a beat down. But the invitation is to look up, look up. So in Hebrews chapter 10, we're gonna look at verses one through 18, but the author uses the word offering or offer nine times in these 18 verses. He uses the word sacrifice eight times. So what does that tell us? There's something he's wanting to move us toward. I mean, he's been talking about this since chapter four on repeat, right? He's talking about the idea of offerings and sacrifices and we'll see this more of this compare and contrast today. But here's the question that I came to that I'm asking myself and I want you to ask yourself this morning. What am I offering God and why am I offering it? What am I offering to God and why am I offering? I have two options. I'm either offering God my life from a place of overflow, from a place of gratitude, from a place of feeling forgiven, accepted, free, or I'm offering God my acts and works to try to make myself acceptable. And this is the ugly part of me. That I could possibly find myself consistently offering things to God in order to feel worthy, to feel forgiven, to feel accepted, as opposed to offering my life to God. Because see, Jesus, I've been made worthy and I can live from a place of forgiving. So I want us to walk through this passage, but I want you to keep that thought at the forefront of your mind. What am I offering? What is my offering to God? And why am I offering it? Maybe today God will reveal some shadow missions in your life. Starting with verse one. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder so let's stop right there. Uh, he's been saying this for several chapters now. The law is simply a copy, a picture, a shadow of what is real. 
We talked about that last week. Remember I showed you that picture of my dad and my dad built this little town and he, he built these two trains that are going around the town. And remember we talked about how cool that was? That, that man, it's a cool looking thing, but then you turn on the train, it goes around in circles and you get bored pretty quickly. Why? Because it's not real. We can't live in that town. We can't, we can't live in the days of yore. Why? It's in the past. And, and, and his construct is just a picture, just a shadow of the reality. Remember I showed you a picture of my family? That beautiful family picture that we literally struggled and fought to get, everybody smiling at the same time? And that beautiful snapshot of that moment in time doesn't tell the whole story. It's just a picture, a shadow of the reality. And so he's telling us here that the law is just a picture, a shadow pointing us to Jesus. Jesus said it about himself, Matthew 5, 17. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to do what? Fulfill it. That flies in the face of what the American church says about the Old Testament. So many times we go, oh, well, there was some Old Testament stuff that happened, blah, blah, blah. But now we live in the New Testament. We live in, in, in what Jesus did from here going forward. And what we've got to realize is Jesus didn't abolish the Old Testament. We did. In fact, he's pulling everything from the past and he's making it relevant in today. So it's not just a new covenant. It's a completed covenant. He says, hey, listen, I didn't come to abolish all that stuff. I came to fulfill it. I am the complete fulfillment of everything that you read about in the Old Testament. It's all summed up in me. And then you see these two ideas that he's been talking about year after year, repeated endlessly, verses once and for all. So let me say year after year, repeated endlessly. Let me say it again. Year after year, repeated how, how much? Endlessly. Let me say it again. Year after year, repeated endlessly. endlessly. Year after year, repeated endlessly. Year after year, repeated endlessly. That's a beat down, isn't it? So just think about that. This whole idea of I've got to go year after year for one reason, to be reminded of what a failure I am. Because he said it. He said, listen, number one, it doesn't forgive sin. In fact, the law wasn't given for us to uh, live up to. It was given as a reminder that you could never live up to it. And so every time uh, they would come and, and, and they would take this goat and they would sacrifice it for forgiveness of sins, it was just an annual reminder that they didn't have what it takes. And guess what? It happened year after year repeated endlessly. So what is he contrasting that with? He's saying that Jesus stopped the madness. He changed the cycle. It went from year after year repeated endlessly to bam, once and for all. 
No longer do I have to go be reminded of my sin. No longer do I have to go and be reminded of my guilt, of my shame. But now, because of this once and for all perfect sacrifice, now I am free, I am forgiven. You see, the on repeat was a sacrificial offering that was not coming from a place of gratitude, but from a place of guilt and shame. So think about this. One of the most dangerous words in the English language is the word potential, right? Have you ever seen someone that has great potential that's never fully realized it? Man, I think right now, if you're watching the NBA Finals, man, everybody's banging on Jordan Poole because last year, he was instrumental in in the Golden State Warriors title run. And this year, he just jacks up bad shot after bad shot. He doesn't play defense. Um, I've been watching the games. And so I'm looking at it going, man, what is wrong with him? And, And at the end of the day, what's happened is it seems like he has regressed, not progressed. But there's nothing worse than not living up to your full potential, right? How do you feel when you don't live up to your full potential? Man, when you don't live up to your potential, um, it's hard when somebody tells you that. Somebody says, hey man, I'm really disappointed in you. (laughs) Crush beneath the weight of those words. But you know what? It's equally as bad when I pull something off, but I know I left something on the table. And that's really just between me and the Lord. And so often we bury ourselves beneath the weight of shame. Whether it is that you've succumbed to peer pressure, you've given in to temptation, or you simply keep doing the same things over and over and expect a different result, that's Albert Einstein's definition of insanity, right? And we do it all the time. The cycle of shame keeps you in a place of doing and striving to earn favor or forgiveness. And this can be with God or with other people. So let me just say this. I mean, uh, Shame drives people pleasing. So if you find yourself uh, that you're a people pleaser and you're kind of a slave to, to making other people happy, and, and, and guys, I just in my worst moments, that is my biggest struggle, that I want to make sure that everybody's happy. That, that's, that's my place in our family, by the way. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a dad of daughters, so I mean, I'm surrounded by women. And uh, um, somebody's always crying in our house. It's usually, usually me. And... Uh, but man, uh, you know, I told you last week that, that our family was in town and so everybody was converging on our, uh, on our house for the entire month. And I, I was stressed most of that month because I just wanted everybody to have a good time. Man, can we all just get along? Can, I mean, what can we do to go out and do something so that we're all happy? And here's the thing, happiness is elusive, y'all. You know that. Leading a church Happiness is elusive, y'all. Thank you for all the things that you've shared with me. But um, uh, at the end of the day, man, if we're only as good as the last smile we got, if I'm only as accomplished as when I made you happy in the moment, then guess what? Whatever I got you with, I got to keep you with. Which means that I could live my life striving 
to make sure that everybody likes me. I can spend my life trying to do, do, do so that I can be accomplished, so that I can feel good about myself because you like me. But guess what? That flies in the face of what Jesus died for. He didn't die so that you would like me. That's right. (laughs) And then he held his arms up. (laughs) I don't know if he was saying amen or move on. (laughs) I'm going to pretend it was amen. So here... Here's the deal. I mean, we find ourselves a slave to people's perception of us, don't we? But guess what? It's shame that drives that. Because deep down, our sense of self-worth is tied to what someone else thinks of us. And then take that spiritually, constantly. Here's the deal. We trust God for salvation, and then we live in an old way of thinking so that we're constantly trying to get God to be happy with us and pleased with us. And uh, some of you are here this morning. You're checking a box because you knew you needed to come to church. You looked outside. You're like, hey, it may rain. Should we stay home? Nope, got to be at church because God will be happier with me if I go to church. And I I love that you're here, but that's jacked up thinking. God is not more pleased with you because you're here. And he's not unhappy with you because you're not. That is not how it works. And see, if you remember, he's talking to this group of Jewish believers who were falling away from the faith and they were going back to an old way of thinking. I do so that I can earn. I do so that I can be forgiven. I allow the blood of a a bull or a goat to be sacrificed on my behalf so that I can live to fight another day. So here's the bottom line. Shame causes striving. That is sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year. While living forgiven and accepted causes freedom and rest. Receiving once and for all, the sacrifice of Jesus. If you go all the way back to uh, Hebrews chapter four, he talks about entering the rest of God. Not that you have part of God and you're going to the rest of God, but the rest of God. So what Jesus talked about in Matthew 11 when he says, hey, come to me. If you're weary, if you're tired, come to me and I'll give you what? Rest. I'm gonna exchange something. The great exchange is I'm gonna give you my light load and take on your heavy load. I am offering you rest. And so it becomes a matter of moving from shame to forgiveness. Moving from living in shame, trying to make myself acceptable and living from a place of forgiveness. Verse four, he says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We beat this up, but remember on the day of atonement, the blood of animals was first the blood of bulls for the high priest and his family, then the blood of a goat for the sins of all of Israel. And he's like, hey, listen, that is insufficient. It doesn't take away sin. It's religious, it's a ritual, but it was never meant to take away sin. It was actually meant to remind you that you've got it, you can't get rid of it. It was a placeholder for the perfect blood of Jesus. Verse five, therefore when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, 
but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So there's a lot here. So he's quoting Psalm chapter 40, verse six through eight, and then he lays out and explains what he means by quoting it. And so he's taking this Old Testament text, which was written by the psalmist David, and he's reinterpreting and giving it the voice of Jesus. Did did you see that? In verse five, it says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, colon, And then he quotes Psalm 40. Well, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus did not directly say that, but now the writer of Hebrews is is going back into the Psalms and he's saying, listen, this is a very Jesus-like thing to say. And he's reinterpreting the scripture because here's the deal. If you want to see Jesus, he's on every page of the Bible. And this is foreshadowing of a savior. And look at what he says. He says, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. So the idea of God not desiring offerings and sacrifices is not a new idea. We've been talking about it for weeks. Uh, It reminds me, a couple of weeks ago, um, I showed you Amos chapter five, but I want to revisit real quickly because it is so staggering in its truth. 521, he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. What is a stench? They stink. He says, your assemblies, your festivals, they stink. He says, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. What's he saying? Listen, your gatherings mean nothing to me. In fact, the the offerings, the little bit, the afterthoughts that you're bringing to me, they mean nothing to me. In fact, the songs that you sing, they mean nothing to me. That's encouraging for a Sunday morning. Welcome to restoration. So you're like, bro, lighten up. I made an effort to get here this morning. So what's he driving toward there? The prophet's talking to the people of Israel who had a hard heart. They were doing all the right things for the wrong reasons. David gives voice to it in Psalm 51. This is his song of repentance. This is after he's been found out And now he has to uh, fall on his face because he's committed adultery. In Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, you do not delight in sacrifice where I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. But here's what he says. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. David gets it. 
He's like, hey, I've done some stupid stuff. And so what I could do, because I own all the cattle in this area, I own all the goats and bulls, I'm the king, I could bring the mother load of sacrifices and sacrifice them to you in order to be made acceptable. And guess what? You would reject every one of them. In American culture, we just throw money at stuff to make it go away, don't we? In general, it's like I got a problem, money will fix it. And maybe like even in the church, maybe you give in that way. Maybe you give to be made acceptable in some way. And, and uh, that's between you and the Lord. But at the end of the day, God doesn't love you more because you give and doesn't love you less because you don't. You know what he loves? He loves the heart. Because when he has your heart, he knows that the overflow of that's gonna be good because your heart is his. And it just changes the narrative, right? And David got that. You don't want my offering. You want my heart. And then, and then, you know, he attributes to Jesus with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here am I. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He showed up. He's there praying and he's sweating great drops of blood and he's begging God, I don't want to die. Do you realize that's what was going on there in the garden? He's like, listen, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. Yet what? Not my will, but your will. He showed up. Here am I. So, what happens in here? Man, you showed up. You showed up today. That's great. Will you show up tomorrow morning in the secret place to sit and be with Jesus and just show up and say, here am I. Yes. Hey, Jesus, here I am. I'm here. What would it be like if what you were known for in your walk with Jesus is that you just kept showing up day after day? What do you actually think would happen if you chose today, hey, starting tomorrow, I'm just going to show up. Some of you will never miss a workout, but will you show up and sit with Jesus? Some of you will not miss the opportunity to binge watch whatever you're binge watching right now, right? And man, I'm a binge watcher, so no judgment. But here's the question. Will you show up? Here I am. That's 90% of the battle, y'all. Maybe more. It's a lot of the battle. Just showing up. Then he says, I've come to do your will. Come to do your will. Which means I won't just offer something from a place of guilt or shame. I will offer you my life from a place of freedom and forgiveness. So Jesus set aside the idea of endless pursuit of reconciliation through sacrifices by becoming obedient to a sacrificial death. He partnered with God in order to purchase your freedom. How does that feel? To know that, that Jesus partnered with God, he became sin who knew no sin, Romans 5.21, that we might be called the righteousness of God. That's what he did. He partnered with God to purchase your sin, to stop the madness, to, to stop the cycle of shame. 
So there are so many thoughts here, but um, it just here, it just follow my thinking for just a second. Uh, Paul, in Philippians 3, verse 10, he, he says this. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What? I mean, who says that? I think probably most people in that room, uh, just by show of hands, how many of you would say, I want to be like Jesus? Keep them up. Keep them up. How many of you would say, I want to be like Jesus, even if, even if it means I suffer and die? Yeah, now you feel the pressure, right? You're like, don't hold me to that, God. Yeah, at the end of the day, those are easy words to say, but, but Paul meant it. From the day he said yes to Jesus, he was constantly on the run. He was beaten and shipwrecked. He was left for dead. He was ultimately executed for the sake of knowing Jesus. And he would say, hey, man, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in suffering. What? That's a new way to live. How many of you woke up this morning and said, Jesus, just allow me to suffer with you today? Right? Nobody prays that. We want the fruit of the Spirit, joy. Jesus, just give me joy today. And he's like, great, James 1, 2, consider it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. He's inviting us into a different way of thinking that is no longer dependent on whether you get your way or not. What if you weren't the point? (gasps) What if the gospel was never actually about you? What if it was about the world and you're a part of the world, but you're not the world in and of itself? For God so loved what? Yeah, that's not for you to put your name in there. You're not the only person in the world. You are not the point. You are a part of a bigger picture. And he's like, hey, listen, in order to follow me, it's gonna be hard. Paul got it. Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ and now it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. What does he say? He's saying, hey, listen, Jesus, put me up on the cross because I wanna die to what? Myself, it's no longer about me. When you said yes to Jesus, that's where the cycle of shame stops. It's no longer about you being worthy. You couldn't be worthy on your best day. Some of you, that hurts your sensibilities because you're like, oh, you don't know me. I don't have to. None of us have what it takes apart from the saving work of the blood of Jesus. And the invitation is to die with him, to join him in dying. Because when we die, a new life is resurrected in us, and it's a better way to live. Paul again, Romans 12, 1, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, so through through the lens of the mercy of God, because you've received mercy, what does he say? Offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. So what's he talking about? What does a sacrifice do? It gets up on the altar. Offer your body as living sacrifices. He's saying, listen, take it to the altar. You die. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
So what's he saying? Man, the way up is through death. The way to live out your purpose is that it's no longer about you. You're not the point. You're not the hero of the story. All of this to say that until I die to myself, stop trying to make myself acceptable, stop managing my shame and unworthiness, I am not fully receiving the life that Jesus died for. No more shame, no more striving. So I was talking through this with Gavin this week, and I just confess to you guys, I got to the end of last Sunday, and I was looking ahead to to, uh, Hebrews 10, because that's what I do, right? I'm sitting on the front row, not even having finished Hebrews 9, and I'm already looking at 10 going, more of this. (laughs) And I really walked out, like, I had just finished, and I walked out, and Gavin's like, what's wrong? I'm like, dude, I got to preach the same thing next week. It's just the same stuff. On repeat, day after day, year after year. (laughs) And so we sat down together and we started talking through this and he said something to me that resonated with me so much and I'm gonna attribute it to him. He probably heard it somewhere else, but I'm gonna give him credit for it. Um, He said this, you can't become who God wants you to be if you're constantly trying to make up for who you used to be. Write that down and put it on Instagram, right? And credit Gavin Carrier.com. You can't become who God wants you to be if you're constantly trying to make up for who you used to be. Man, is that truth or what? And how many times do we spend our life just trying to make up? You know what that's called? Shame. When we transfer our sense of worth to who people perceive us to be instead of just throwing ourselves on the altar and go. Uh, Hey, I was never worthy in the first place. Jesus, thank you for what you did. It is a freedom from shame. Okay, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. And so again, he's contrasting the earthly high priest with the great high priest. He says day after day versus once and for all. And then remember, he's, he's now quoting Psalm 110 verse 1 without quoting it directly, where he says, hey, when Jesus was done, he what? Sat down, which means what? It is finished. It is finished. He did everything he needed to do. Jesus never has to die again. He doesn't have to die over and over and over. He died once and for all, for all sin, for all time. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it best. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be called the righteousness of God. You are righteous not because of your own goodness, but because of Jesus. And even better than that, you're made new. Yes. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is what? New. The what? Old is gone. Gone. Kaput. That's German. It's not here anymore. The old is gone. The new has come. 
In Jesus, you don't have to live in an old way anymore. So you don't have, a, have to pray a prayer and then do a lot of things to try to make yourself worthy so that you get to heaven. No, the kingdom of God comes to, to live in you. And he frees you from a life of shame. Verse 15, we're almost done. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is a covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And so he's revisiting Jeremiah 31 here. And who does he attribute this to? The Holy Spirit. So first he says, Christ says, and then quotes Psalm 40. And now he's revisiting Jeremiah 31 and he says, the Spirit says. And what did the Spirit say? The Spirit says, listen, I am going to give you something new. I'm gonna give you a new mind and a new heart. I'm gonna write the law on your mind and write the law on your heart. How does he do that? Through the inner working of Jesus Christ. When you say yes to Jesus, if Jesus is the fulfillment and the embodiment of the law, when you say yes, the spirit of Jesus comes to live in you and now you get the full embodiment of the law living inside of you. That is how he gives you a new mind. That song that we uh, sang on Easter, I think we sang it again last week, the song, The Blood, it talks about that whole idea that I don't walk like I used to. I don't talk like I used to. And I would add, I don't think like I used to. As a man thinks, so he is. Do you think differently because you follow Jesus? Like, think about your life. Before you started following Jesus, did you think a certain way and now you think in a new way? Because here's the thing, for so many of us, we've said yes to Jesus because we don't want to go to hell. But if it's not changing the way you think, if he is not transforming your thoughts so that the outflow of your life is something different, then I'm not sure what you gave your life to. You gave your life to some religious pursuit. But here's the thing. When Jesus comes on the, on the scene, things change. Your heart changes. Your mind changes. And it is an inner working. And your life is an outflow of an inner working. And I love what he says. He says, you get a new mind, a new heart. And then he says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. You get complete forgiveness. You're justified just as if I never did it. How cool is that? In Christ, your sins are wiped clean. The slate's wiped clean. You've been made new. What does that mean? Stop holding your past against yourself. It's time to receive that if Jesus has forgiven you, it's enough. Move on. That he wants to give you a new mind and a new heart. Did you stop going back to a cycle of shame, going back to uh, being unworthy and everything that flows out of that and receive from Jesus the complete forgiveness and acceptance that he's given you and live from that place? What would it be like to really fully believe that Jesus no longer holds your sin against you? If you really believed it, some of you have done some pretty jacked up stuff, right? I know I have. And if I live my life 
feeling unworthy because I don't feel forgiven, you know what it'll lead me to? It'll lead me to a cycle of shame, trying to earn favor with God and earn favor with others. Verse 18, punctuation mark here. And where those have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Period, end of story. Do you see it? If you've been forgiven, you don't have to keep coming back over and over and over again. You're forgiven. What does living forgiven look like? When I'm living in such a way that my sins are no longer held against me, that's not a license to sin, y'all. I think we, we hear that and we take grace to this extreme. Well, I've already been forgiven, so I can do whatever I want. No. It doesn't mean that you no longer have a sin nature. It doesn't mean that you no longer struggle. Read Romans 7. What it does mean is that you no longer have the desire to sin. You have the desire to live in a new way, to have a new mind. And the more you give yourself over to that by showing up, here I am, I'm in the secret place with Jesus, transform me from the inside out. What you find over time is you start thinking differently. And then you start living differently. And you live in such a way that your sins are no longer held against you. Because they're not. Okay, so let me wrap this up by asking this question. The original question, what am I offering and why am I offering it? So is it possible to offer good things with the wrong heart? I mean, we can go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter four, right? Abel comes and gives his offering and he gives the first fruits of his offering. Cain shows up and just gives some of his stuff. And we don't know all of the nuances there. What we know is that God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. And Cain handled it so well. He took his brother out in the field and offed him because he was so angry and so hurt He was so ashamed that he allowed that shame to get the best of him. And that shame turned to anger. That anger led to an outflow in his life. And it was all around an offering. What we know is that there was something going on in his heart. You don't kill your brother or kill a brother (laughs) if there's not something going on in your life. But Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter six. He says, you know, when you give dot, 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 when you pray dot, 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 when you fast dot, dot, dot. And then he tells us, hey, listen, it's not about, uh, uh, you know, throwing some money in the coffer so everybody knows. It's not about praying loud flowery prayers so that everybody hears. It's not about uh, fasting so that you look starving. No, he said, go in the secret place. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. When you fast, take a bath. Why? Because it's a part of the inner working. He said, I don't care about your actions. I care about your heart. 
Because when I have your heart, the actions are going to follow. So not just what am I offering. You know you. You know what you're leaving on the table. For some of you, you've got a calling that you're not living up to and you know it. You're not living up to your full potential and you know it. You're leaving meat on the bones. You're leaving something on the table and you know it. And you just allow that to be uh, transferred into shame. And you allow the enemy to, to write a narrative in your life that you're not good enough instead of breaking the cycle, cycle and living forgiven. Living forgiven, living free. That's what he has for each and every one of us. What am I offering to God and why am I offering it? What is the heart behind it? When you offer anything with the wrong heart, you miss the blessing of partnership with God. Two more quick thoughts. Number one, you can either live to be forgiven or you can live forgiven. You can either live TBF or you can live forgiven. You get to choose that. For, for, for many people, you've trusted Jesus for salvation, but you still believe that he has not forgiven you. This first is from a place of shame and will cause you to constantly try to earn favor with God and others while the second is a position of freedom. It's a forefront proposition. We say it in the church, man, I'm living for Jesus. That sounds great. But the problem is when we live for Jesus, it means that we could very easily be doing a lot of things that he's never asked us to do in the name of living for him. And he's inviting us into a, a life of living from him. It's not about me. I'm not the point. And then finally, your identity will either be your accomplishments or what Jesus has already accomplished. You get to choose that. You can continue to live to try to make yourself worthy by the things you do, or you can receive what he's already done and live from that place. You can either seek to build your resume or you can receive that it was never about you. Back to the Grand Canyon. This is your life. Full of awe, beauty, and wonder. It's got some peaks, it's got some valleys. But I'll tell you what, it's full of adventure. It's full of opportunity, it's full of possibilities and this is the life that God has prepared for you. And so you can either live in the awe of the beauty and the wonder or you can live like me. Just looking at your feet, trying to survive. That just feels exhausting, doesn't it? a better way to live. Jesus, we know that too often we are defined by our shame. We define ourselves by what we're not doing, by what we wish we were doing, by what we should be doing. And over and over, you're inviting in us into something transformative something that's free, something where we can come and rest in you. And I pray for a group of people that will stop striving. And they will come to you with a humble heart and just say, here 
I am. Maybe right now where you're sitting, maybe that's what you need to say. Here I am. I want to give up the fight. Jesus, I want to receive from you everything you want to give me, and I want to live from that place. I want to stop reading my resume, building my resume, and I want to start living off of your resume. And you got a really good one. Once and for all.